Thank you so much. All right. Once again, welcome to our folks that are coming to us uh, by live stream. It is such a blessing. And uh, today, praise the Lord in the morning service. I believe we're able to get through the morning service just fine. And uh, praise God, we're hoping and praying for that tonight. Whenever you have a moment, uh, I've told our people this, whenever you have a moment in the course of my preaching, when you're starting to drift, just take that moment to pray and say, Lord, keep that Keep that live stream broadcast going. No interruptions, no internet going down or anything like that. And we will appreciate that so very much. All right. Now, what, what do we want to say about this week? We know that this week is going to be a busy one. Uh, we got a crowd out by the grace of God today. We're going to go back and solidify that and add to that crowd and grow and grow and grow and get back. Uh, we had some folks that got back for the first time in a year and a half today, and they said, wow, it's great to see the church filling up. That was the exact language that was used. See the church filling up. We want to see the church filling up. We want to see it beyond that, don't we, folks? We want to see it overflowing. We like to see standing room only someday, and uh, God can provide that. I believe in a God who can do that. How about you? Amen. Amen. All right. So... We're going to turn in our Bibles tonight as we get into the Word and as we said this morning, we want to get into the Word until the Word gets into us and we want to uh, uh, get this uh, into us so that we will be able to face the challenges of life uh, successfully in the power that the Lord provides for us. I'm asking you to turn tonight in the Old Testament to the minor prophet Nahum, Nahum. And I like the notes that are provided in this case by the Old Schofield uh, Reference Bible Committee. And uh, they were certainly, they stood head and shoulders above the so-called New Schofield Reference Committee. Uh, the old committee, of course, comprised of a wide array of Bible believers, evangelicals, Protestants. Uh, I see some people on there that, uh, brother, we probably, we probably couldn't have in our pulpit but uh, we certainly appreciate the work that they did on the committee. And with the exception of them being wrong uh, with respect to the oldest, quote, and best manuscripts, unquote, they were wrong on that. They were wrong on the uh, local church. You know that, uh, that uh, C.I. Schofield was, was uh, influenced by Darby and other brethren individuals, and so... They didn't have the same view of the local church that we independent fundamental Bible-believing Baptists have about the church. We know that uh, the church was established during the earthly ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we know that He is still building His church. And uh, that's the tense, I will be building, be building, be building. Be. He's been be building for a long time. And we are part of those living stones. Amen. We're part of the reality of this institution of the local church. Now, apart from a few things, the Schofield notes are always helpful. I like to go to them and at least see what they were thinking about. And here in the book of Nahum, if you've got a Schofield Bible, it's page 952. And if you've got some other kind of Bible, like the one preacher who was stuck on the Schofield notes, he says, it's 952 in my Schofield Bible. And if you haven't got one, I hope you never find the no, he, he, he was just kidding. All right, I'm glad that you found the book of Nahum. 
Nahum, it says in the Schofield note, prophesied during the reign of Hezekiah. How many of you remember Hezekiah? He does not have a book named after him. Hezekiah, as you know, was the king. He was a good king. He made some mistakes, but he was a good king. And you know, it was prophesied that he was going to die, and he wept, and the prophet said, God will give you 15 more years, and he did. But during those 15 years, two really bad things happened. His son Manasseh was born, who for a long time was the most wicked king. And then also, he showed the enemy all the stuff that they eventually came in and plundered. But other than that, Hezekiah uh, represented one of the better kings over the course of the history of God's Old Testament people. Hezekiah was living, and this was during uh, the 7th century, 700 B.C. So uh, if you've got uh, Usher's dates there, it's 713. And uh, when we open this prophecy of Nahum, uh, it uh, says in verse 1, the burden of Nineveh, the burden of Nineveh. You talk about a weighty message. It's time we got back to some weighty preaching. Amen? Amen. It's time we got back to some substantive preaching. And here, this preaching illustrates what we are going to be understanding as last day's preaching. Here we go. Let's take a look at it. The burden of Nineveh. Nineveh being the capital of Assyria, a wicked nation at this time. Had not always been that way. 150 years before this, there was a fellow who got swallowed by a whale that God had prepared. And who knows the name of that prophet? That prophet's name was Jonah. That's right. Jonah got swallowed by, the, by that whale that was pre prepared by God to swallow him. And he got swallowed because he was running away from his call. His call from God was to go to Nineveh that great city, and cry against it. Now, the preacher that God had tapped to do this, Jonah, was already uh, a remarkably famous, uh, well-known, renowned preacher in his day. You read about him in the Kings. And he was, he was a prophet. He was a preacher. But he didn't want to go to Nineveh. The reason he didn't want to go to Nineveh, some people say, well, he must have just been scared. Well, if he was scared, he had reason to be scared in the flesh because... The Ninevites were very cruel to anybody that they wanted to be cruel to. And they loved to, to hurt people like the Jews. And, and uh, they showed themselves very cruel and very nasty toward those that they conquered. But the real reason why Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh was because he knew about the way God works. God can do things that no one else could imagine. God can cause lost people that you'd say there's never a prayer, there's never a hope that person will ever come to God. That's just a wicked, nasty person, and God can save that person. God can do anything. Amen? God is in charge. And in the case of Nineveh, Jonah knew that God could cause Nineveh to repent and be spared. And he thought to himself, if I do this, then what's going to happen is, my great-grandkids or my grandkids are going to suffer because they're going to go into declension because that's, that's usually what happens. If, if I go there and I preach and they repent and they get right and God spares them, I'm going to be upset because it's going to be three or four generations and they're going to get, get to all pagan and heathen again and they're going to come down against my people. And that's exactly what did happen. 
But here's the lesson. The lesson is we don't tell God how to do His business. He tells us how to do our business and His business. We don't tell God that. And so Jonah, who ran away, got swallowed by the whale, got spat up on the shore. He got cleaned up. He went and he preached and he went in four days' journey. That was such a mighty, huge, impressive city that it took him a long time to get to the city. And his message was very simple. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed. Repent. And guess what? They did. They repented. And God spared them. And Jonah sat out there within, you know, eyes view, just observation distance from the city to see what would happen. And he got to having a pity party with himself, feeling bad because these people were going to be spared. This had been 150 years before. And 150 years after the, the Jonah revival that Nineveh had, they were once again wicked and nasty, and they had been warned, and they had plenty of opportunities to, to stay right with God, to get right with God, just like Christians today have had plenty of opportunities, but had not heeded. And so Nahum is declaring to the people that there is coming destruction. There is coming destruction. And that is not going to change. It says, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. This sounds pretty one-sided. Sounds pretty dark and gloomy as far as the Ninevites are concerned. But I want you to look at the text tonight, which is verse number 3 of chapter number 1. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this prophecy. I ask, Lord, that You're going to help us now to get out of this passage of Scripture exactly what applies to us in this day and time. Thank You, Lord, for what You're going to teach us. In Jesus' name, amen. We have sung, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You know, if God does not intervene in the affairs of mankind, it's possible to go so far down the road that there's no going back. There is, there is no um, avoiding the ultimate wrath that the Lord is going to pour out. And that is not because God works up uh, some kind of human capricious anger, but because God is righteous and holy. The title of our message tonight is The Lord Hath His Way. And the Lord's way is based upon who the Lord is. We see in this passage of Scripture, this little book of just three short chapters, a very brief minor prophecy uh, between Micah and Habakkuk, written in about 713 B.C., we see that, uh, that God, God is uh, true to His attributes. And His attributes that are taught in the Word of God, clearly taught to us, help us to understand how God actually is. Now let's, let's just talk uh, the way things actually are. 
if, if we were to survey the, um, the terrain, let's call it the, the, the playing field of, of religion today, most people, even those who claim to know Jesus Christ as Savior, will have their own pet definitions and descriptions of God, won't they? How the Lord is, how He's supposed to be. And so you say, all right, tell me, how is the Lord supposed to be? How is God? And they will begin to give you their own take on God. Well, He's really big, and uh, He's really strong, and uh, God is love. And none of those things that I've just said are totally wrong, but it does not take into consideration the attributes of God. And so when we're discussing with people about who, what God will do, we have to look at who God is in the Bible and what these attributes are about God that make Him uh, as He is and make Him do what He does. There you go. All right, so uh, we have isolated some of these attributes. Self-existent, that means He doesn't need anybody else to exist. Self-sufficient, doesn't need anybody else to be sustained. Eternal, no beginning, no ending. Infinite, you can't measure him. Omnipresent, he has the capacity to be everywhere. Omnipotent, he is all-powerful. There is nothing, even everything else coming against him is not as powerful as he is. He is all-potent, he is all-powerful. Omniscient, he knows everything. He knows everything, that means he knows more than everything that everybody else put together knows. He is wise, not in man's wisdom, but in God's wisdom, which man calls foolishness, but he is wise. God, God knows how to put it together, how to piece it together. Man can't figure out how to get it together. Immutable, that means he is not going to change. The Bible tells us that God never changes. He is sovereign. That means that he is in charge and not to be questioned. And This is what most people do when they get in a bad way, isn't it, sweetie? We, we counsel a lot of people, and there are a lot of folks who are just plain mad at God. They're bitter with God. They're upset. I talked about somebody like that today. It's bitter with God because a loved one passed. And there are people who have not come to terms with the fact that God is sovereign. That doesn't mean I have to like it in my flesh. That means that I have to acknowledge that God is in charge and He makes no mistakes. And because of that, that's what we go with. We have to yield to that, to His sovereignty. He is also incomprehensible. That means if you go, hmm, from now into eternity, you're never going to figure God out. With God, it's just a matter of faithing out the situation, not figuring out, but what's God's plan, what's God's program. Yield to that, submit. He is holy. That means that He is completely above and beyond in purity in every respect, every aspect of His dealings. Uh, he is holy. He is righteous and just. That means he's never wrong. He's always right. He's always just. He's always exactly right on. He is true. He never lies. He doesn't have any part of a lie. You'll find something in the Bible that, that, uh, that may appear to be God going this direction, going that direction, but it's got God's total plan that's in view, and we, we can't take it in. We don't have that kind of, of uh, peripheral uh, understanding of what God is doing but we know that whatever God does it's right it's true he's faithful he never ever gives up he keeps at it keeps at it 
He is light. He exposes everything that's not right, everything that's sinful and impure. He is good. Not in the sense that we say, oh, that's a pretty good deal. That's pretty good. Uh, we got a good, uh, got a good meal today. No, God is not good in the sense that your meal was good today. And God is not good in the sense of good, better, best. But God is good in the sense that He has no evil in Him. The difference is between good and evil, and He is 100% good. There you go. He is merciful. He gives second, third, fourth, fifth chances. Uh, praise God for the church of the second chance. He is gracious. That means God gives us everything we couldn't deserve, couldn't earn. He is love. That means that God's agape love is in the behalf, the benefit of every person, whatever is best. That's what God is toward us. That's His love toward us. He cares for us. He surrounds us, encompasses us, embraces us in that love. God is spirit. God's not physical. He's not limited by time and space. He is one. That is, there's only one God. There's but one God, but there are three persons. He is Trinity. He is the triune God. He is three together. And those are 23 attributes that we have identified in our study of Scripture. I set out to do that, gave the, the, uh, the job, the duty of defining these on a child's level to our evangelist in California, Brother Patterson, who's now in heaven. And so for self-existent, he put God is, dot, dot, dot. For self-sufficient, God doesn't need anything. Eternal, God is forever. Infinite, God is bigger. Omnipresent, God is everywhere. Omnipotent, God can do anything. Omniscient, God knows everything. Wise, God knows more. Immutable, God never changes. Sovereign, God is not questioned. Incomprehensible, God is Hmm. Holy, God is better. Righteous and just, God is never wrong. True, God never lies. Faithful, God never gives up. Light, God exposes all. Good, God is not evil. Merciful, God gives second chances. Gracious, God gives all. Love, God cares. Spirit, God is not physical. One, God is alone. Trinity, God is three together. So even though those are children's definitions, they're pretty good. They're very astute, and I very thankful for what Brother Patterson was able uh, to do as I gave him that assignment. I'll never forget the look on his face when I gave him the assignment. He went, remember that look? That was his look. But he came back in a week with these definitions, and I thought, that's just outstanding. That's fantastic. He has simplified what is so difficult to simplify, not covering the whole subject, obviously. When the Bible says in Nahum chapter 1 and verse number 3, the Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. He hath his way. That means that God always operates within the context of who he is. And he has told us all we need to know, not everything there is to know, but all we need to know about himself. Because this is how he deals with us, boys and girls. When God deals with you, it won't be some other way. It'll be this way. It'll be according to this book. So we need to get into this book that we preached on this morning. We need to get into the Word of God. That's why it's important for us to always remember. God doesn't have two or three or five or ten plans of salvation. There's only ever been one plan of salvation. 
And those who say there's more than one plan of salvation just reveal their confusion. There it is. When people say, well, God is love and He's only love, they show that they're, they're not wise with respect to understanding all the attributes that we've been able to identify. And there may be, there may be a thousand or a million and 23 attributes we don't know about. But all the attributes we know about are in perfect, look at me, perfect balance and harmony in God. So if there is this righteous, holy response to sin in the form of judgment, that may seem to be what we are focusing on, but God is still love. He is still unconditional love. Robert Morehouse came to preach for D.L. Moody. Morehouse was the boy preacher from England. And uh, up in the smokestack region of northern England, industrial country, I think Manchester is where Morehouse came from. But he had met Moody on one of his uh, tours of Great Britain. said, I'd like to come preach for you, young guy. I'm going to preach for the great D.L. Moody in his Chicago church. And uh, Moody kind of you know, spoke to him and just said, yeah, I'll never see him again. But Moody was off speaking, and I've used this uh, illustration, but Morehouse came to preach, and, and uh, the leader said, should we let him preach? And Moody was off a distance, and he said, sure, let him preach. What harm can he do? Well, he preached, and the people loved him. And when Moody came home, he asked his wife, how did Morehouse, how did the young preacher do? He said, oh, he's great. Everybody loves him, but you won't like him. Why won't I like him? Well, he says that God loves sinners. He doesn't preach like you do. He says God loves sinners. And see, Moody was very good at this point. He was a student of the Word of God. He was self-taught. He, he hadn't uh, gone through much elementary education, didn't have a, a secondary college education at all. Everything was just his teaching. He would read on a subject, and uh, he would make notes, and he would get his illustrations, and he'd put them all in a big... Uh, Manila envelope on the subject of love or on the subject of judgment or on the subject of, you know, whatever it might be. And he would put those in there. And, we, and he said, when the envelope got full, then he would take it all out, spread it all out, put it together and make a message. And that's how he would choose how to preach. And his preaching was, though it was true to the, the context, it was largely topical preaching. So he was preaching on topics, and whenever he had a full envelope, he would preach that. And God was blessing that. Isn't it amazing how God blesses His Word? It will not return void. But Morehouse was preaching on God's love, and he was starting, he was starting on Genesis chapter 1 and preaching through Revelation 22, 21. And as he preached, he would take every example, and sometimes he would take examples of judgment, and he would show the flip side how this really was God in action, unconditionally loving. Now, I don't understand it, but I believe it. I believe that when God is completely righteous and just and holy and true and faithful, He is also love. I believe that. I believe that they don't conflict. And even though in my human logic that appears to be contradictory, in God it's not. In the realm, if we can make this circle for just a second, say, here's God. You can't put God in a circle, but if I can just say that here's God, and you got all of these attributes, in God, it's perfectly balanced. In God, 
it makes perfectly good sense. Now, when, when I try love on for size, or I try holiness on for size, I don't get it like God gets it. Hopefully, in being in the Word, God is able to bring me along so that I have more balance in my life, in my judgments, in my dealing with people. But I am not God. I understand that. There we have it. All right. So in the passage of Scripture that we see here, we see some attributes of God. But it says he's slow to anger, great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. You see, this was 713 B.C. And what was going on around this time, you remember back in, in Isaiah 38, Hezekiah got sick and he recovered and so forth. Over in 2 Kings chapter 19, you remember that Assyria came up against, came up against and threatened, threatened Jerusalem. You remember that? And God took care of that. Well, this is all happening. This is the backdrop. And Nahum is saying this as the Spirit of God moves on Nahum. He's saying, all right, we've been patient with Assyria, with Nineveh. They've had 150 years. How many generations is that? That's, that's four, five generations, maybe six generations. I don't know, you know, depending upon, you know, how they're uh, conducting their, their lives and how long they're living and so forth. So th there's a number, there's great, great grandchildren involved here now. And here Assyria is rattling sabers and coming against Jerusalem and, and, and Hezekiah is laying it out before the Lord and leaving it to God and God's taking care of business. Amen. Nahum is prophesying and saying, okay, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be destroyed. And this, the specifics of that destruction are absolutely amazing. God is slow to anger. It will be 100 more years before the Ninevites are destroyed. And they will be destroyed when the Medes and the Persians come against them and take them out. The Tigris River is going to overflow. Look in Nahum 2 and verse number 6. The gates of the rivers shall be opened and the palace shall be dissolved. Now, this was written 713. We know, of course, God's word is settled forever in heaven, but it was written down 713 B.C. Now, in 600 and something, about 100 years later, this actually happens. The modernists love to go back and, and redate things and say, well, that what couldn't possibly have been 713. That's got to be contemporary with what happened. It's got to be after the fact. Maybe it's four or 500 B.C. Maybe it's not 700. No, 700 B.C. When Jesus quoted the Word of God, His Bible was the Old Testament. By that point in time, by the time of Jesus Christ, there was not one doubt about the authenticity of the entire, what we have, 39 books of the Old Testament. Every single bit of it was already accepted. Jesus Christ accepted the Bible of his day completely. No questions asked. Just like we should absolutely accept those 39 books 
and the 27 of the New Testament, no questions asked. Simply, you know, hear my Lord, send me. Do with me what you want me to do. Uh, Lord, work in and through me. I yield, I submit to you. Our response to the Word of God should be like we sang this morning in Sunday school. Yes, Lord, yes. To thy will and to thy way. I'll say yes, Lord, yes. That's what we need to be. A God who can predict a hundred years, a thousand years, uh, thousands of years before the fact is a God who certainly only desires that we yield and submit to Him. God doesn't need my help. God doesn't need your help. God wants us to yield to Him. When we become His vessels and He works through us, we can be a blessing. We can accomplish His purposes. So we have these alternate attributes of God all working together in perfect harmony. The Lord is slow to anger. Why would He do this? The question is raised. Was He giving Nineveh yet another chance? And if you read the three chapters of this little book, you will discover what I have discovered again today. I've read it through this afternoon again. There is not one hint that there'll be another chance. They're going to be destroyed. They're going to be overthrown, and it will happen in God's time. We can't say what God is going to do when. We can only say God said this, and it, He's going to keep his own schedule, and we need to be yielded to him. One hundred years will pass, and God's going to destroy Nineveh. He's not saying, I, there's something that you can do, a combination of things that you can do, and I won't destroy you. He's not saying that. The, uh, the absolute finality of these three chapters prohibits any consideration that somehow God is going to give them a way to escape. They're not going to escape. They're going to be destroyed. But, you see, God is speaking to them in His perfect balance as though He has two roles. R-O-L-E-S. He has two roles here. And God does have more than one role to fulfill. How many of you believe that God is the creator of all? Raise your hand. How many of you believe that He is the spiritual Father of all who come to Him by grace through faith, receiving Christ as personal Savior? Okay. So, here we have the role of God as Creator. We have the role of God as the Savior and Father of all those who will come to Him on His scriptural terms. There's another role. There is the role of judge so we have God the creator we have God the savior and we have God the judge and none of these are in conflict liberals go nuts about this preacher they want you to read the Sermon on the Mount through their twisted prism and think that somehow everything's going to be okay because this God is going to universally forgive everybody whether or not they claim Christ as Savior. He's just going to automatically, universally give everybody 
a reprieve. And nothing could be further from the truth. I don't have to read too very far in the Sermon on the Mount. Go back to Matthew chapter 5. Of course, God gives us this message through our Savior Jesus Christ. And it's not very far in that uh, he, he puts it down so that nobody ever, ever is going to miss it. He says this right on the heels of talking about uh, all of the, uh, the Beatitudes and rejoicing and being the salt of the earth and the light and so on and so forth. And then he says this, But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment, and whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council, but whosoever shall say thou fool shall be in danger of hell fire. I've never ever heard a liberal preacher preaching on the Sermon on the Mount get that far into the fifth chapter because they don't want you to think that the same God who is the Creator and the Savior is also the judge, but He is. He absolutely is the judge. And so, the Lord, who is slow to anger, great in power, will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath His way in the whirlwind and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of His feet. You can't get very far from that. And you understand what I'm saying to you tonight. The doom of this city was set, and the warnings that are given are very much like this. This Creator has wonderful desires. And those desires and those hopes and aspirations are that this creation would be redeemed. This marred creation would come back to Him by grace and be restored. And there will be a father-child relationship. That's what the Creator is in hopes of. The, the Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the offer is there. You understand that. The offer is there. Not everybody is going to accept. Not everybody will receive what is offered. But the offer is there. This God who created wants this creation to be redeemed. Not everybody will be redeemed. And so what happens? Here's what happens. Here we have God the judge. And God the judge and God the Father are one and the same, and that's balanced, and these roles do not conflict. My dad said to me, your curfew is a certain time at night. Anybody ever have a curfew? Come on now. I won't ask you to raise your hands and embarrass yourselves in front of these kids. Anybody ever break curfew? All right, now here's what happens. Here's what happens. This father says, here's your curfew. This judge is waiting in case this creation doesn't make it in on time. That's exactly what you have. Now, this father wants him to do right. This father wants him to make it in on time under the curfew. 
But if he doesn't, you got the judge there. And there will be absolutely no wiggle room. It's such, such a time. Son, I want you to make it in by such, such a time. The clock strikes whatever number that is. And now the judge is waiting. And the judge says, here's the punishment that will be meted out. So we read in Nahum about the judge, the courtroom, the charges. And what God does here in this passage of Scripture, as God is being described as jealous, vengeful, furious, full of wrath, great in power, not acquitting the wicked, indignant. Look at Nahum 1.6. Who can stand before his indignation? That may not meet the modified definition of the liberal, but of the thoroughgoing, fundamental, independent, Bible-believing, Baptist preacher and theologian, this is the totality of who God is. While being a God of unconditional love, He is a God who has indignation. He is a God who is wrathful, furious, great in power, will not acquit the wicked. As a father, He's slow to anger. As a father, He is good toward those who are His. He is a stronghold. He's a high tower. He is a buckler. He is a shield to those of His. He knows those who trust in Him. That's relationship with the Father. But over here we have the judge. And that's who Nineveh is going to have to deal with. There are hopes. There are aspirations. Because God does not bring judgment on Assyria in hot anger and haste. That some individuals in this 100-year period of time will come to terms with who God is and will do business with the one and only God of the universe. That's it. As we read in Nahum and beyond, we see what happened. The king is trying to rally his troops, but the Tigris River has washed away uh, the part of the wall where the, where the water comes under, and so that has uh, exposed the city, and the Medes and the Persians come in, and they burn the place and destroy and plunder the place and take captive all the royalty, and that's it. It's over. Those who had thought that they would stand and it would be impregnable have been sorely disappointed and so will all those who stand against God in his judgments the note at the bottom of the first page in the Schofield reference Bible first page of Nahum Nineveh stands in scripture as the representative of apostate religious Gentile dumb as Babylon represents the confusion into which the Gentile political world system has fallen. Now that's a lot of explanation, a lot of analysis. And I want to credit those who have spent a great deal of time, and you see all the verses that they have placed there for cross-referencing. But the message of Nahum to Nineveh is also a message 
to the end times world governments who have set themselves in array against the sun as we read at the beginning, at the outset, in Psalm chapter 2. You know, God is going to sit in the heavens and laugh them in derision because God ultimately, having the last word, the last say, the last laugh, is in charge. I'm so glad that knowing this Creator God is this judge in His courtroom and by His rules has pronounced that judgment, I'm so glad that I also have a father-son relationship with that same God. And because of that, I want to exercise uh, my, uh, my status as a pastor to pronounce upon this uh, generation, this people, a warning, a stern warning. We don't know when the ultimate judgment will fall upon the Gentile world. But when it does, it is going to be total, it is going to be complete, and King Jesus is going to sit on His throne and is going to rule and reign. Praise the Lord. I'm glad I'm working for Him. I'm glad I'm not working for Antichrist. I'm not working for the governments of this world. I'm working for the one King Jesus who is going to be in charge and is going to rule literally upon the throne of David. Praise the Lord. We're getting in position for that right now. Do you realize in this age of grace in which we find ourselves, the next great event is going to be the translation of God's people, the rapture of the believers. We're going to be taken out of here. There's going to be seven years of absolutely uh, horrific, chaotic uh, judgment by the Antichrist, and then that will be concluded by the Battle of Armageddon and the judgment of the nations, those who have treated the Jews right will exist as nations in the millennium, and those who have not will not exist. I'm praying that we'll have uh, some kind of a presence of the United States, but I can't guarantee it. If we, if we abandon uh, Israel, we're going to face uh, anonymity and non-identity as a nation in uh, that period of time known as the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But I know this, as individuals, we'll be in glorified bodies, we'll fight in the battle of Armageddon, praise the Lord, and we will be victorious, and we will rule and reign with Jesus a thousand years. If we have stood for Him, if we have, uh, you know, if we've been true, if we've, uh, in the face of persecution in this time in which we find ourselves now, then He's going to give us, make us ruler over greater things, and praise the Lord. Right now, in this age of grace, we're really positioning for where we're going to be in the millennial reign of Jesus Christ. I don't know where that will be or, or what position that will be, but I am very thankful that I'm not serving the governments of this world. I'm serving King Jesus, and He's going to rule and reign. He's going to put every world kingdom under His feet. He is the stone that rolls down and collides with the image representing the Gentile uh, organization of government in this world from the beginning to the end. And that stone is going to take out that statue, take out that image, and totally grind it to powder and dust because Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords and every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And aren't you glad that we're doing that now? Every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is 
Lord of lords, to the glory of God Almighty. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? Every head bowed, every eye closed, nobody looking. How many of you tonight would say something in that message tonight spoke to my heart? Slip your hand up high so I can see it. Something spoke to my heart. Amen. I've read the back of the book, and guess what? We win. Praise the Lord. The Lord hath His way, and I'm thankful that He is perfectly balanced, and there is no contradiction in His attributes, and we simply yield to Him. How many of you tonight would say, Preacher, I want the Lord to rule and reign in my life right now. I want Him to be Lord over me right now. Slip your hand up high. Come on. I acknowledge Him as Lord. Praise the Lord. Amen. If you've never received Christ as Savior, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Would you pray from your heart right now to God something like this? Dear God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I deserve to pay for my sins. I believe Jesus died to save me. And right now I receive the Lord Jesus Christ into my heart as my personal Savior. Please take away my sins and take me to heaven when I die. And if you prayed that prayer and meant it, would you slip your hand up, anyone at all? Let's stand to our feet and sing together a hymn of invitation. many comforts people live in wealth and luxury but the master still asks the question lovest thou me lovest thou me more than thee Lovest thou me more than these, my child? What will your answer be? Oh, precious Lord, I love thee more than all of these, more than fame. More than wealth, more than the world. I love thee more than this old world can offer. All sinful follies I deny for thee. My love, my life, my all, I pledge thee. I love thee, Lord, I love thee, Lord, more than these. Lovest thou me more than these, my child? What will your Precious Lord, I love thee more than all of these. More than fame, 
more than wealth, more than the world. Amen. If you enjoyed that, say amen.